Benjamin Franklin, who was one of the founding fathers of the United States, he was one of the authors of the American Constitution, he once said, in this world, nothing can be said to be certain except death and taxes. I think I probably agree with that. Uh, depending on your circumstances, you might also agree with Margaret Mitchell. She was a fictional character from the book Gone with the Wind, in the, written in the 1930s. And she said, death, taxes, and childbirth. There's never a convenient time for any of them. <laughs> that we all have to pay taxes. Or do we? Uh, can sometimes be quite a fine distinction between tax evasion which is illegal, and tax avoidance, which is not. For example, the former football, um, Portsmouth football manager, Harry Redknapp, was tried for tax evasion after it was revealed that he had accepted an untaxed bonus from his football club, which he paid into an account in Monaco named after his pet dog, Rosie. <laughs> but tax avoidance is legal. And you probably remember the debate in the lead-up to the last general election about the tax affairs of non-DOMs, where the present tax laws in this country allow some wealthy UK residents to limit the amount of tax paid on earnings outside the country. Now, I wonder how we feel about them, or about big multinationals like Amazon, who trade in the UK but pay very little tax by slipping through legal tax holes in British tax law. I don't know about you, but when I hear about a wealthy individual or a company avoiding paying tax, even if it is legal, I feel as though they are in some way not fully committed to this country. They're more concerned with what they can get out of it than with what they can put in. Now, our short story today appears only in Matthew's Gospel, and uh, Matthew is an ex-tax collector. I guess it would have been a story that he would have particularly remembered when he came to write his Gospel. It's part, as Mike said, of this summer series um, by, uh, on Jesus by the sea, and we're now the um, last but one of the summer series, and we're rather scraping the bottom of the barrel. <laughs> Water really only gets a very brief mention in this story, but it, is, it does take place in Capernaum, and Capernaum is by the Sea of Galilee. So, on the surface, it's a story about Jesus paying tax, but Jesus uses this incident to teach his disciples what he, Jesus, was committed to, to reveal more about who he really was, and to open their eyes to God's provision for them. You've got the outline, I hope, um, in your news sheets, and we can follow the passage together on page 985. But to understand the story you need to know a bit about the background of the temple tax. This temple tax, it was an, an annual half-shekel tax. It was paid towards the upkeep of worship in the temple at Jerusalem. It was a Jewish tax, not a Roman tax. It was payable by all adult male Jews, except rabbis and the temple priests in Jerusalem. Now, it was a bit of a matter of civic pride that, you know, Jewish civic pride that you paid this tax, but 
It was also a little bit controversial because the Jewish Sadducees disapproved of the tax. The Jewish men in Qumran only paid it once in their lifetime. So, you know, the story is already beginning to have quite a modern feel to it. You know, people thought about taxes then, but they think about taxes now. The story takes place in Capernaum, where Jesus used to stay at Peter's house. So when the tax collectors approached Peter, who was the household head, and asked, doesn't your, your teacher pay temple tax? It was a bit of a loaded question. Would Jesus claim exemption as a rabbi? Would he take an independent line on tax paying, like he had on so many other matters, and thus alienate himself from the majority of patriotic Jews? Was he part of the Jewish mainstream, or was he not? Now, Jesus chose to pay the temple tax. So this story tells us quite a lot about the identity of Jesus. Because in paying the temple tax, Jesus was identifying himself with the Jewish mainstream. He lived as a normal Jewish male. He took part in the Jewish social and religious customs of the day. And that included the Jewish financial obligations. Jesus was a committed Jew who paid his temple tax, even though he had questions, to put it mildly, about some of the commercial practices in the temple itself. You've only got to move a few chapters on in Matthew's Gospel to find Jesus in Jerusalem in the temple, overturning the the tables of the money changers and the merchants, and saying, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. But Jesus was a good citizen. And if we take Jesus as our role model, I believe that this story affects our view on paying taxes. I think that, as in many walks of life, we need to be careful that we don't apply double standards in this area. And I find it quite telling that a recent poll um, said that uh, found that more than four in five, 80% of British adults said that tax avoidance by large companies is morally wrong, even though it's legal. But more than a third, 37% of respondents, said that they would consider using a tax haven to reduce their tax bill if they knew how to. Double standards, maybe. Something to think about. However, I think that this story has got a lot more to teach us than merely being a good citizen or, indeed, the identity of Jesus as a good Jew. Because Jesus goes on to explain in some detail to Peter why he was paying the tax. And in so doing so, he reveals a lot more about his identity Now, there are a lot of implications compressed into this little illustration about who kings collect their taxes from. And uh, they do need a little bit of unpicking. As Jesus implied in that illustration, that he didn't need to pay the temple tax. Why not? Well, Jesus possibly could have claimed exemption from the temple tax on the grounds that he was a rabbi or a teacher. But he doesn't do that. 
Because Jesus' primary identity wasn't just as a teacher, amazing teacher as he was. Instead, Jesus asked the rhetorical question as to whether kings collect taxes from their own sons. And the answer here, unspoken, is of course not. Because king's taxes in those days were imposed for the upkeep of the royal house, of the king's house. However, the temple tax was imposed for the upkeep of the temple in Jerusalem, God's house, the place where God himself was believed to dwell. So God's son will therefore not be obliged to pay for the upkeep of his father's house. Now this story follows on from, from Peter's confession that Jesus was the Messiah, the Son of God, a couple of chapters ago in Matthew's Gospel. Jesus is reminding Peter in this story, I'm not claiming exemption from the temple tax because I'm a teacher, but because I'm God's Son, the Messiah. Now I think it's relatively easy for all of us to see Jesus as a teacher, as a good role model. But God's son, the passage, I think, challenges us to see Jesus in this way. How do we see him? Now, there might be people here today who are happy to see Jesus as a teacher, but struggle to see him as God's son. Now, I'd encourage you just to hang in there. We're going to explore this a little bit later on as we think about God's provision for us. But what if we do see Jesus as God's son? What are the implications? If we, like Peter, confess Jesus to be God's son, then Jesus has authority over us. We can't pick and choose the bits of his teaching that we like and ignore the rest. We need to listen to him, not just a passing interest, like members of the crowd who were following him, but with obedience, like his disciples. And that might mean struggling with some of the hard sayings or swimming against the tide of popular opinion. Being a follower of Jesus will have different implications for every one of us. Think just for a moment what difference being a follower of Jesus makes to your own life. Now, if you have difficulty in seeing what immediate difference it makes, then perhaps you need to question how closely you're actually following him. Now, Jesus made it clear to Peter that God didn't require him to pay the temple tax because he was God's son. But he didn't want to cause offence to his fellow Jews by non-payment. Jesus was actually quite prepared to give offence if the, if the issue was central to his mission. For example, in his healing ministry, he didn't hesitate to heal on the Sabbath against Jewish traditional law. But a declaration of independence on tax paying at this point in time would have served no useful purpose. Indeed, it might have detracted from his main mission. And I think his actions serve as a reminder to us that sometimes we need to discern on a particular situation or issue whether we should take a stand as Christians 
or whether it's better to remain silent to avoid causing unnecessary offence. Now, this can sometimes be quite a hard call to make. And often, like Jesus, we have to make a decision just like that, on the spur of the moment. But I'll put it to you that you're much more likely to make the right decision if we're staying close to God, like Jesus was to his heavenly Father, particularly a decision made that has to be made quickly on the spur of the moment. Jesus' instructions to Peter to go and find their temple tax in the mouth of a fish are a bit unusual, to say the least. Um, Those of us who went to the um, Holy Trinity pilgrimage to the Holy Land will remember that in Galilee we uh, once had a meal of St. Peter's fish in a convent by the shores of the Sea of Galilee. They were very fierce-looking fish. They were very tasty, and their mouths were certainly big enough to hold a small coin. But the Bible doesn't say that this is what Peter went and did, so I don't actually think that a miracle is the main point of this story. And indeed, some commentators on this passage think that Jesus was really suggesting to Peter in an ironic way that the proceeds from a night's fishing would be more than enough to pay the temple tax. So I think the main point about this little episode is that Jesus was confident that God would provide a way for that tax debt to be paid, both for Jesus himself and for Peter too. God usually provides for our needs not by miraculous events. Indeed, if he did, the world would be a pretty chaotic place. But equipping us with the gifts and talents necessary to obtain the things we need, and in this case, it might have been Peter's fishing skills, But there is one debt that it's impossible for us to pay by ourselves. And that's the debt of sin. However rich or talented we might be, however good we try to be, we can't do it. We all fall short. Now the temple tax was a contribution towards the animal sacrifices that the Jews made there on a regular basis so that they might obtain God's forgiveness for their sins and restore their relationship with him. But the temple wasn't going to last. By 70 AD, it had been razed to the ground by the Romans. It wasn't able to provide a lasting sacrifice for sin. So at a deeper level, this story points forward to another provision that God was about to make. And this was a lasting provision for the consequences of our sinfulness. This provision was his own son, Jesus. Jesus provided a way for that debt to be paid by paying it himself with his own life on the cross. Because uniquely, Jesus was God's son and also fully human. He alone was able to bridge that gap that gap that separates us from God, he alone was able to pay the debt and restore our relationship with God as forgiven people. The provision that Jesus makes for us, this provision is the most wonderful provision that we can ever receive. It's above, far above any material wealth or riches that we might accrue during our lives. 
the riches of God's grace to us, his forgiveness, cancelling out the debt of our sin forever, a lasting relationship with him. These don't depend on the movement of the stock markets. We don't have to earn it or pay for them. They're all free. All we have to do is to receive them. And God's provision isn't just for this life, but it's for the whole of eternity. So let me draw some strands together as I close. We started off today reflecting um, on our attitude to paying taxes. And I think often that a key to our approach to tax is to hold an awareness of what we have received. I, I was struck by this recently when I visited Uganda. Ugandan citizens have very little in comparison to us in terms of transport and communications infrastructure, healthcare, education opportunities, etc. It makes it made me feel very grateful to be a British citizen living in the UK with all the material riches and benefits that this brings, benefits which are often paid for by our taxes. But material benefits are not the only things we receive in life. We've been thinking about God's provision for us today in Christ, and in Christ we have received so much, gifts that it would be, have been impossible for us to have acquired by ourselves. If I was struck by the material differences uh, between the UK and Uganda, I was also struck by differences in attitude with some of the Ugandan Christians that I've met. These are people who have very little materially, but who are acutely aware of all the spiritual blessings that they've received. They don't take God's gifts for granted that they have hugely thankful hearts, full of gratitude for God's generosity towards them. And that is reflected in their lives. They've got a generosity of spirit to others that reflects their awareness of God's generosity to them. And so they're eager to share with others whatever they've themselves received, whether that be something materially or spiritually. And all of this because of Jesus, God's son. So I'm going to leave you with this final thought. Does the way we see Jesus impact on the way we live our lives? Do we do a bit of pick and mix with his teaching, like the crowds who followed him? Or do we really see him as God's son, living in obedience to him as our Lord, and having grateful hearts for all that he's done to us, for us? A gratitude that spills over into gratitude towards others. Amen.